There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? When the lights start to fade, when the dying sunlight slowly kindles the stark neon that will take its place, that's when I walk the dark street. What street? Yeah, it doesn't matter, because this is a city without care, rife with refuse strewn down its alleys, scattershot whispers wheezing for attention, dust-drenched displays begging for your last quarter and offering nothing in return. Whiskey's just a cheat, a short bridge over the river of forgetfulness. But what it doesn't tell you is that it stops halfway across. And the moon? That's just the last streetlight, the only one not shot out by stones of apathy, cracked by petty cruelty. Yeah, that's when I walk the dark street. But maybe this night, this chill, damp night, I might turn a corner and find Max Mike Movies! <laughs> well, that got dark. Which I'm depressed. Will be a <laughs> which will be a great contrast to our brilliant commentary. Ooh, yeah. Streaking through the night, his pants only just on fire, is that minion of mayhem, Max Minion Levine. Say something noiry, Max. Help. Help. I'm on fire. <laughs> Baby. And I am Mike. What the hell just happened loose? We're in the middle of our series on film noir, Walk the Dark Street. And this week's entry is a little different. Dark City is a bit science fiction, maybe a touch urban fantasy, but is it at all noir? Well, that's what we aim to find out. While this was on our list, it was also suggested by one of our listeners, Matt Reisman. We love to hear from our listeners. We love to hear from you so much that we ask you to answer our... Poll question! Last episode, we asked you to answer the question, what is your favorite direct adaptation of a comic book? What you had to say is, well, this. Starting from the website, for once, we have Vince, Sultan of Snow, Poobah of Penguins, who answered, quote, I whoosh, have a few... whoosh. <laughs> Thank you for the atmosphere. Mush, you walruses. <laughs> quote, I have a few comic-based films I really like. The Rocketeer, I thought, was a fun adaptation and had a real strong Art Deco look that matched the comic. And I also has Jennifer Connelly in it. As, as does this movie. I seriously love the 80s Flash Gordon, which is just full of fun, and the Buster Crab serials <laughs> might count as comic films as well. The 80s Adams Family is brilliant and still holds up, but I'm sure Mike will get a headache and put his hand to his head, accidentally suddenly summon deadly pink flamingos, and admit Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, is his favorite, <laughs> end quote. Um, I can honestly say that I have never seen the Sheena movie. Oh, wait, wait. sure. All those uh, Tanya Roberts posters, the tattoo. Yeah. Wait, uh, yeah, Look. sure. There, were, there was a Sheena movie? Yeah, yes, there was. It oh. show, oh, it's mentioned in, I think it's in the Golden Turkey somewhere. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, sure. thanks, hmm. Vince. Yes, thank you. Although Adam's Family isn't a comic book, it's a comic strip, and that's... It's that's I mean, different. It's not even a script. It's usually a single panel. But it's different because, damn it! Ooh, what's that stuff oozing out your nose, Max? Ah, oh God! <laughs> it was brains. <laughs> anyway, also from the website, Ned had this to say: "Quote Pacific Rim. It works a lot better when you think of it as a Marvel movie than when you line it up against other Guillermo del Toro movies. Oh, that's that matter, true. Hellboy is another guilty pleasure of mine." Scott Pilgrim is a really fun movie, but doesn't entirely do the comic justice as Scott doesn't have the time to do the whole emotional growth thing, but a great movie nonetheless. Akira! Ghost in the Shell! Not the Scarlett Johansson one. Spider-Verse! Many are great. He, he had those exclamation points. End quote. Well, those are lots of great answers, some yeah. of which might echo my own. Thanks, <laughs> Ned. <laughs> no, no, really, thanks, Ned. Bringing up something very current, Aaron Perez offered, quote, Nimona was really good. Unquote. Oh, it is. That is it's, a lot of fun. Thanks, Packy. I haven't read that or seen it yet, but I've heard lots of good things. Of course, that's a webcomic, and they don't count. It was published in paper. After it was a webcomic. <laughs> that, so it doesn't count. La, 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 I can't hear you. La, 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 la. <laughs> Let's see. Do I remember Max putting that stipulation in the, the poll question last week? I do not. 
type, 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 type. Yes, I did. Uh, that's nice for you to type, but it's an audio show. Your typing will achieve you nothing. Not, I might say. You win this round. <laughs> Dave. Dave. Who has a lot to say. Say. Especially about stuff Japanese wrote, and here it comes. Quote, I have to say I'm impressed by the ability of modern filmmakers to nail down specific images from well-known comics and bring them to life. There have been a few scenes in X-Men movies where I thought, gee, I have seen that exact scene in a comic book. In the Sandman TV series, which didn't work for me as entertainment because the scenes were not dramatic enough and I kept falling asleep, absolutely nailed the original imagery. <laughs> Of course, the Japanese are the masters of this, here it comes, making live-action films out of manga going all the way back to the 60s at least. My favorite is probably the Gintama movie, zany like the originals, and so much fun. That said, Koiki Katsuo, whose stories can be misogynistic and pornographic, has an incredible visual sense, and several of the movies where he worked with the director are incredible. His paranoid, sadistic version of samurai culture dominated the field for ages, and I am so glad for the wave of 21st century gentler samurai films. Yes, folks, you heard it here. Gentler samurai films. Kinder, gentler samurai <laughs> films. Softer. Fluffier. Of the Koike Katsuo films, Baby Card in Peril is a favorite because, one, banned in Japan due to political nature of the subject matter, two, visually stunning, and three, sexual content not so unpleasant as to ruin the film. Woo! Bohachi, Clan of the Forbidden Eight, also from Koiki Katsuo, is visually stunning, but too pornographic in places for me to call it a favorite. <clears throat> Lady Snowblood is also Koiki Katsuo, although I didn't Ooh, enjoy yeah, it particularly. I've heard of. Yeah, I just hope he doesn't make me say Koiki Katsuo one more time. Then there You're is Doberman good. Cop, which Max and I checked out recently. Yeah. That one was over the top and based on a comic from one of my favorite manga artists. And it has a pig in it. That, how could you not watch it then? Yep. And there are the Fable movies on Netflix, weird and have a few odd quirky characters. I enjoy the original comic and like the use of color in these, as well as the way they did the action scenes. Also, those films star, oh boy, Okada Junichi, no, yes, <laughs> Okada Junichi, who is becoming one of my favorite Japanese action stars, end quote. Phew. Wow, we, nice job on the names. <laughs> I Maybe. Uh, we always learn a lot from you, Dave, and you always test my ability to pronounce anything. Mm. Thanks. Especially if it's Japanese. Mike Weaseldans was next with, quote, Maybe not my favorite, but I think that overall they made a really strong run at The Watchmen when Zack Snyder did his film in the early 2010s. Uh. Some of the scenes, especially the intro, Times They Are a Changin', and the Dr. Manhattan origin were incredibly well done, end quote. That was a very faithful adaptation. Thanks, Weez. Yeah. Nick Hoffman posted, quote, So many of the best comic book movies aren't direct adaptations of actual comic books, but more amalgamations of them, which is why Max asked the way he did. That said, I really liked Mickey Rourke's turn in Sin City, and I love the mm -hmm. overall feel of it. End quote. Oh, well... Don't listen to hey, last week's episode. I, I, <laughs> I liked Marv also in that. I thought he was a good, uh, the bright spot. Yeah. Scholar Adam Mark posited, quote, I'm not a comics guy, so I don't have a full lexicon of knowledge in this field. Burn! Burn the heretic! Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> wow. Okay. Sorry. I, no, I, I don't know no, where that don't came burn. from. Anyway, continuing with what Adam said. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> Still, you cannot deny the wonderful variety of film material that has come from the Batman franchise, from the deeply mm. serious and dark The Dark Knight 2008, to the comedic and brightly stylized Batman and Robin 1997, and all oh. the derivative material, Joker, Catwoman, etc. I cannot think of any other franchise in which so much talent has thrived, and which has been more lovingly tended, and which looks so much fun to create. They've wisely allowed multiple actors to play Batman and the Joker, which has only lent strength to the franchise. Case in counterpoint, we're missing at least seven Indiana Jones films and at least a few <laughs> more of Jack Ryan because Harrison Ford selfishly clung on to those roles for decades. It's a disservice to the fans, the industry, and the cinema itself. Share the wealth, Batman forever, end quote. I had not heard that Harrison Ford was the cause for that, but... Um, yeah, I thought they kept, like, harpooning him and dragging him back into the studio. Or, in his case, asking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't... Well. Yeah, I don't know that I would agree with that, or... Because uh, didn't we start Jack Ryan? Wasn't that Alec Baldwin? Yeah, it was. We, we okay. have had a couple of Jack Ryans. 
But I also think that one of the reasons we haven't had any more is that the last ones didn't do that well. But yeah, they did a series, a streaming series of Jack Ryan. I don't, I have no idea how well that went, except that I haven't heard anything about it. Yeah. So I don't think it lasted. But interesting stuff on Batman. See our entire anniversary series on all the Batman. All four hours of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you don't want to see our entire or that's listen okay. to our entire episode, that's totally fine. We totally get that. I don't know why we do these things. Oh, dear uh, gods, we're less than, we're almost halfway to the next one of those. Well, uh, yeah. Tyler Stewart has a few choices. Quote, The Dark Knight, The Batman, Kick-Ass, do not see the sequel. The Sandman, and definitely Nimona, end quote. Ooh, another vote for Nimona. Thanks, Tyler. Uh-huh. Val Coons, director, actor, and writer of that excellent podcast, Q Footsteps, and yeah, not Q at all footsteps. related to me, wrote, quote, I haven't read any comic books in years and years. How are we siblings? (laughs) That being said, I think I'd go with the Christopher Reeve Superman. That's a nice, Uh, there's a nice naive feel to it while being a fun fantasy adventure, end quote. Thanks, Val. Not exactly what we're looking for. That'll do fine, because you weren't the only one who didn't. I'm looking at Adam. Anyway, Derek Steele asked, quote, can 300 count as a graphic novel, end quote? Um, Very definitely. And we'll take that as your answer. Thanks, Derek. Mm -hmm. Matt Reisman's choice was, quote, probably Road to Perdition, end quote. Yeah, that's another movie. Oh, that's an interesting choice. Well, another pe- movie that people don't often think of as being yeah. from a comic, but it totally but it is. is. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, Val Coon sneaks back in with, quote, Stephen the Assistant says, The Losers, end quote. Well, thanks, oh. Stephen the. <laughs> I don't know I didn't that hear, I haven't seen it. I, I didn't hear terribly good things about it, but who knows? What you just said is literally all I've heard about it, so. Ah, Regan McStravick was last with, quote, I was pretty impressed with the Daredevil series, at least season one, and mm. then almost as impressed with the Punisher series. Technically, neither are movies. So far, I've been mostly disappointed by the limited creativity of the comic book to cinema creations, MCU, et al. Oh, I haven't seen the et al universe. But oh, then, al, al is a real artist. Yeah, well, I'm sure. But then my comic book knowledge is rather limited, so, end quote. Close enough. Thanks, yeah. Regan. But what about you, Max? What is your favorite direct comic to movie adaptation? Oh God, I, I don't know. You know, you I, there asked some, this. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I wanted to know what other people thought. If I, I would have to go in terms of the one that just made me go, dang, the fir- the early one would be the second X Men movie, X Two. Uh, well, I thought that. Hmm? Which one was that one? Uh, that was the one where they they we run into Lady Deathstrike and they they check into uh, Wolverine's origin. We run into oh. sort of Mastermind. Isn't that the one that didn't have Deadpool in it? Y- yes, I see. But no, no, it, Deadpool. No, Ryan Reynolds wasn't in that one. He was in the Origins Wolverine movie, the oh. standalone. Okay. Now I yeah. think that was the one that just felt very comic booky and very faithful to the characters without being slavish. Even though it wasn't a direct adaptation, which is, in fact, what you asked. That particular, of a specific comic, if it was for a specific comic book, I would have to go with Scott Pilgrim. Just in terms of, and uh, whoever it was who said, was it uh, Louise who said, it doesn't give you the same emotional development for the character, but it's also, it just has such fun being a comic book movie in the way that, Sin City is working at it. You just yeah. like, okay, we got to get this shot that looks exactly like this panel. Scott Pilgrim is like, wee! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would have to go with that as a direct adaptation. What about you? It was actually Ned who who had that opinion. Ah, thank you, Ned. Um, yeah. Uh, so I. <laughs> Well, Ned sort of stole a little of my thunder, but one of them was actually The Crow. I think The Crow was actually a pretty well-done direct adaptation. It was missing some of, I think, the personal trauma, because the person who wrote it, James O'Barr, wrote that comic because his girlfriend had been killed by a drunk driver, and that's where this came from. And So I think a little of that was missing, but I did make an impression on me, not least of which was, wait, there's a city where they burn it down every year? Whew, I am never going near that place. Um, uh, Baum. Yeah. <laughs> the city was Detroit, and it's yeah. about an hour away now. So yeah. yeah, yeah. I liked the Rocketeer, but it had all of the look and none of the substance. It was yeah. just sort of you know we want to get this. And I got to give Disney credit because that was not a popular comic, and they really went to great lengths to make it look like, including making somebody up to look like Rondo Hatton. Which, that was impressive. Yeah. So. But uh, Akira, Akira, which 
to had to take a god how long is that comic 1200 1400 pages and really boil it down but akira also really i think woke a lot of people up in this country to anime i don't i think it made it as close to mainstream as it was going to get at that time and things like the soundtrack in that in that movie really changed a lot of things it's if you even just listening to the soundtrack is really interesting the original Ghost in the Shell, the anime, not the live-action Sierra. Entire episode on Ghost in the Shell. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. But also uh, Persepolis. Which, oh, if you yes. haven't read that comic, I mean, it's a direct adaptation and has some really interesting stuff in it. So Didn't we do an episode on that, too? Yeah, at some point. Because we, we've been talking about eventually doing some uh, foreign films. But as always, thank you for all the great answers. They always brighten our inbox. Yep. That being said... None of those answers will fit this week's poll question, which is, is there still room for noir in today's cinema, or has it all been said before? Do let us know, and knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! But for now, back to Dark City. The facts. Budget, 27 million. Take, 27.2 million. (laughs) So it's made money, kind of, almost not. That would be no. Eh. Hey, does this set feel familiar? Well, some of the set pieces made for this movie were sold to the makers of The Matrix. Yeah, I was going to say. The Matrix was also filmed in the same studio, and that is not the last (laughs) comparison we'll be making here. Borrowed some of the wardrobe, too, didn't they? Oh, and well, as I said, we'll get back to that. Like some other movies done on this show, this one has an opening narration that the director objected to. Alex Proyas felt the overdub by Kiefer Sutherland gave away some of the plot elements, but the studio insisted. Pity. But there's a director's cut, which until I did this show, did not know. Yeah, didn't know that either. So I have it coming in the mail. Speaking of that director's cut in Proyas' version, it's actually Jennifer Connelly doing the singing in the nightclub scenes, which Mm. I would like to hear. Yeah. Because the overdub was terrible. Surprisingly, this movie has an average shot length of only two seconds. I did not feel or notice that. I didn't either. Wow. Yeah. That's remarkable. Richard O'Brien, Riff Raff himself, is not here by (laughs) chance. His part, that of Mr. Hand, was written especially for him by Mr. (laughs) Sluggo. Uh, (laughs) That's a deeper. In a a somewhat... If you don't know that, never mind. You're too young. In a somewhat surprising move, Roger Ebert declared this the best movie of 1998. Can you remember another movie that came out that year? It might have been a little bit more popular. No. You don't have a sinking feeling? Oh, God. Titanic? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's right. Which is one of the reasons this movie didn't make so much money, but... The movie Proyas made before this one was the ill-fated The Crow in 1994. He and Brendan Lee got along very well, and it is likely that he had Lee in mind for the original lead in this film. The only shot in the movie not made on a soundstage or set was the final one of Murdoch and Emma on the pier overlooking the ocean. It's also the only shot in sunlight. Yeah, I believe that. Proyas is not a household name, but he also directed The Crow, iRobot, and a whole lot of Prime-era music videos. He also made a short film in 2021 called Mask of the Evil Apparition that supposedly takes place in the same universe as this film. There are rumors of him working on a Dark City series. Other than that, there wasn't much except comparisons to the director's cut, which sadly I knew nothing about. Max, you don't know anything, do you, about this? Or anything, really. (laughs) It's the cheese, Max. Just remember, it's all about the cheese. All about the cheese. I wear the cheese. It does not wear me. (laughs) Mm, That's why he smells so good. So no no trivia on your part for there? No, not really. Well, I guess it's time to get... Except Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get to the plot. Yeah. Yeah. um, Okay, we're in a city somewhere in North America. Sometime in the 1940s, 60s, 50s, we're not really sure. A man apparently named Murdoch wakes up in a bathtub and has no idea where he is, who he is, how he got there, or hey, what that dead woman on the floor is doing there. 
The phone rings. It's a voice telling him he needs to get out of that apartment right now before he's found. Dressing quickly, he does, but no answers are forthcoming. His wife, Emma, played by, as Max would put it, Jennifer Connelly, <laughs> is looking for him. They separated when he found out about an affair she had, but she's not heard from him in over three weeks. Police Inspector Bumstead, played by William Hurt, is looking for this Murdoch, too, as he's the prime suspect in a series of murders and, hey, look, there's a corpse in the room in which Murdoch was staying. Seems pretty cut and dry. But things aren't like that at all. In fact, there's something so odd going on, it seems either Murdoch must be going insane or everyone else is being lied to, and we mean everyone. And it's not a small lie. It's a lie about the very nature of the world, which Murdoch believes, is no bigger than the city in which they all live. In the middle of all this are some very strange, shadowy, pale, bald figures. When the city comes to a very sudden stop, everyone falling asleep at the same time, these figures move about the city, changing how it looks, how it's constructed, and sometimes changing the very roles people play. Their memories, clothing, and situations are all being manipulated to suit some mysterious means. Or are they? Follow Murdoch, scientist Schraber, played by Kiefer Sutherland, Emma and Bumstead, as they start peeling away the layers of reality and lies until they finally get to Shell Beach. The film. Usual question, Max. Did you see yeah. this when it came out? Uh, I did not see it in the theater, I don't oh. think. I saw it on videotape a year or so later. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't heard much about it. I don't... I did see it in the theater, and I don't think it got a lot of press one way or the other. Like, no. I, I get the feeling that the, th the studios didn't really know what to do with it. Yeah. And so advertising was perhaps not a primary concern. Uh, we have to address the elephant in the room. I'm sorry. William Hurt plays Inspector Bumstead. Okay. And all through it, all I am thinking is, please, please tell me his first name is Dagwood. <laughs> just just say he has a blonde wife. You don't have to call her blondie. Just tell us she's blonde. Let's see him with a big sandwich. Come on! This would be <laughs> an a, awesome crossover. Or a dog named Daisy. Sure, why yeah, not? Yeah. It, it was an odd choice for names. <laughs> Bumstead. There's a name you hear. Rolls yeah. right off the tongue. Yep. I don't know. Uh well, since you've, you've already gone there, William Hurt, this is actually a pretty laid-back role for William Hurt. He's got a very subtle intensity to him, which is not usually chewing scenery. How I picture William Hurt. Uh, that came a lot later. you got to remember him in the big chill and movies like that. He Never often plays very... Sub yes, you did. We did a whole episode on it. Did we? Yes, we did. Oh, that's the one with all the, the friends who get back together. Yes. I keep thinking it's a noir film. That's why. <laughs> yeah, no, he no. suffered from the big chill permanently. <laughs> yes. No, he was very good in that. Yeah, he can do subtle. It's just, I think, as he went along, he got paid more for not doing subtle. Well, the first film I saw him in was Altered States. I got taken to oh, that okay. in the theater. And he's, um, he's, he's not, not over supposed the top. to be subtle there. Well, no, he turns into a caveman, sort of, I thing whatever but yeah and then becomes an aha video but yeah. uh <laughs> yeah i think he actually does a pretty good job in this i think he's yeah. he doesn't he, have a, mean, he's not in it a lot and he doesn't have a lot to do but what he does he's very convincing well and the thing with him is that he is i think in a lot of ways meant to be the sanity anchor like he mm -hmm. is the most i don't know um what's the word i want Plugged in. He's the most connected to the world in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah, he's, he's the most authority. He's the most, you know, the, the status quo, that kind of things. And when he finally starts to, con to like, reconsider what's going on, that's when things really start to get weird. So in a way, although the main character is played by Rufus Sewell, or Sewell, I have no, no idea Sewell. how to pronounce it, Sewell, it's really when William Hurt's character starts to change his mind that I think the audience starts to change its mind even more. Because um, mm. things are pretty creepy and weird. But yeah, I think he does a pretty good job. Yeah. I think Rufus Sewell does a nice job. He does a very good job at suppressing his English accent in this. I wouldn't have known. I never heard of him. I've never seen him in anything. Well, that's not true, as it turns yes. out. I just mm. didn't realize I'd seen him in other things. Ah. He has a kind of everyman face and quality about him, which actually really suits the film. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? 
Yeah, I do. He does. Uh, he's he's the audience surrogate in a lot of in a lot of ways. At first, we're sort of like, oh, are we watching a descent into madness? And then it's like, no, he's like us. He wants to know what's going on. Yeah, because something weird's happening. Yeah. Well, and, let's just get to her. Let's just get to her. Uh, Jennifer Connelly. Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> Oh, oh Max. God. She's so gorgeous in this. Admittedly, she doesn't have a lot to do. No, she does not. She, you know, she is, and I got to say, this is kind of noir. One of the things about this is kind of noirish, apart from the fact it has an opening narration. Yeah, we'll get to that too, but I yeah. want to come to him later. She's, you know, uh, she's the sort of the ingenue. She's the innocent. She's a dame. She's a torch singer, for God's sake. Yeah. I mean, if there's any elements of noir in this film, it's pretty much the setting and her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. She doesn't have much to do, and she's fine. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's I, her best role because she doesn't get a lot. She doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but she I, she's very convincing in the terms of you know she's confused. She doesn't get what's going on, but she loves her husband, and that comes across. Well, and I love it when he actually gets her to question that because his idea is we're mm. not even married. We've been we don't married know for a each day. other. Yeah, and we don't know each like, other. She, she cannot like get over that, and that's it. Actually, plays up. I think it eventually. There's a really cool question of maybe it's not real, but it's what I feel. So isn't that real too? So, but yeah, yeah, yeah. She does a fine job. Richard O'Brien is. I'm gonna say Richard O'Brien is perfect. Yeah, I can. I absolutely believe the role was written for him. He's so friggin' creepy, and, and uh, he's just that weird little speech pattern of always saying yes at the end of the sentence. We look for Mr. Murdoch. Yes. Not as a question. No. He never goes up at the end of the sentence. He just says it like it's a comma. And I'm going to say, we're going to come to the comparisons, but I'm going to say that he's one of the prime elements that I'm going to use as a comparison to another film that I'm pretty sure we all know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's not too many other people. Mr. Anderson. Yeah, (laughs) we'll get there. Um, Yeah. Ian Richardson Uh, is Mr. Book. Not a huge part, but very suitably creepy. Yeah. Yeah, um, he does. He does a terrific job. Kiefer Sutherland. Wait, wait, one more before oh, we get to him. Okay, sorry. Bruce Spence, only because it's like, yes! wait, is that the auto gyro pilot? Yes, yes, it is. it is. It's also from the extended version of Return of the King. He's the mouth of Sauron. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It, you wouldn't know because he's under forty pounds of latex and a helmet. Yeah, he's he's one of those Australian character actors yep. that I think the fandom has just embraced, like. Um, of course, I can't remember his name. I can picture him. Brown. What's his name? Brown. Um, from Blancy? B- B- Blancy Brown. Yeah. People like Clancy Brown or Ron Perlman. People that just like, oh, it's him. We love him. Bruce Campbell. He's yep. one of those actors. And he does not have a huge part in this, but it's him and we just love seeing him. So. Yep. But. Yep. yep. Let's get to uh, let's get Kiefer. Kiefer. Now. What's put- with the delivery? I don't know. Uh, Kiefer. Uh, may or may not have been the person the script was sent to. The rumor, mm-hmm. I didn't put this in tribute, the rumor was sent w- was that it was actually meant to go to Donald. And Kiefer got made it. more sense, And actually. Kiefer was like, I think you meant this for my dad. And Proyas was like... can I do this movie instead? Well, and Proyas was like, yeah, I don't think we really need you for this. And Kiefer was like, you know what, let me give it a try. And then Proyas was like, you know what, I changed my mind. I do want a younger character than this. So And, and you'll take how much less? Okay. <laughs> Oh, oh, you'll you'll you don't want points? Fine, because you learned that from your dad too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You see our entire episode on Animal House. Um The opening monologue, my this is my first note is it's kind of breathy. And I don't <laughs> So is get all it. of his dialogue. Here's he, the and thing. That weird it's not an accent. He has this strange way of a staccato way of delivering everything. He says in this like <laughs> This hurried sense where he only has one lung. He's got Brenda Vaccaro syndrome. Yeah, I, I guess. And it's so I, choppy. It's a very odd choice. It is an odd choice. The one thing I will say is that in the beginning, it's jarring. And I'm like, why are you doing that? And then I got used to it. And the, mm. he actually, the way he plays the character is somebody who's physically weak. Like, he's not a presence, both personality-wise. And it feels like the reason that the bad guys have him so easily under control is that he's really got nothing to fight with except his knowledge. And so in a way, I actually think it works. It's just, I wish it was just turned down just like a little notch. Yeah, yeah, he may take it down from an eight to a seven, maybe. But also, to be fair, it's Kiefer Sutherland. 
This is not usual Kiefer. Kiefer is usually either a heavy or a swaggering type of character. Or the guy who's absolutely in control. Yeah. So my guess is he's doing this because he feels like, well, I always play this. I have to really just totally 180 this. And it's it may like, be. You could have 160 this. It would have been okay. Yeah. It does kind of work because it also gives you the sense of urgency and he's the sense of panic and the idea that you're always running out of time even though we don't know why. Yeah. So it works. It's just it could have been a little better. Yeah. I don't think it detracts that much. I think it stands out, but I think that, again, I got used to it. Did you feel like you got used to it, or was it always... I did. I did. It sort of ended up working. And it's an interesting... Listening to him and William Hurt in the same scene, which only happens like twice, it's such a contrast, because William Hurt has that slow, easygoing way of talking. You know, it's not a lot of energy, not a lot of urgency, and it's an interesting contrast. And I would say William Hurt feels like his character, who's bums to head. feels like he's literally <laughs> carved from stone like that guy yeah. is as solid and reliable as 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 it is like they're key that's, that's what he's another, there for honestly he's a kind of another noir figure he's oh, yeah. the dependable cop not the detective not the he wouldn't be the hero or the protagonist he's the support he's the guy you go to because you know he's going to do his job you know that's an interesting point i could i would say i disagree in that uh-huh. he's the character you're used to being the protagonist he's the guy trying to get to the bottom of things not the and in this case the suspect okay. um and i think he is also a noir oh there's a lot of noir elements let's face it yeah. i mean yeah. the whole city i'd actually like to get to that i one of the things i initially thought was a a negative to this film is like, dear gods, does this feel like it's shot on a set? Well, that actually plays into it the story. It kind of works, yeah. And it makes sense. And like, we've seen films like, hey, the 1989 Batman film, whenever they had scenes where there were cars driving around, it very much felt like, uh, don't go one inch to the right, you'll knock over a building. <laughs> yeah. Like, cities are crowded, but they're not that crowded. And this feels the same way. It has a very... Uh, what's the word I want where you you don't like closed spaces? Claustrophobic. A claustrophobic feel to it. Yeah. And as we find out, there's actually good reason for that. And by the way, spoilers, but dear gods, this came yeah. out in 1998, so. Yeah. Actually, to be fair, if you have any interest in seeing the film, go see it. We haven't given yeah. that much away, but yeah. Then you can decide for yourself. Yep. Uh, the opening, though, I will say we're sort of like panning down, tilting down through the... Um, city and i'm like are we watching a cartoon because <laughs> it felt kind of yeah cartoony yeah but, but the whole thing of it looking a little unreal does make sense yeah and the fact that everything is shot at night everything happens at night and i mean noir's at its best when it's at night i mean we've seen yeah. other films that take place during some bright scenes like um, the long goodbye which did just fine being almost all during the daytime but when we think of noir, we think of night. And we think yep, of this and time period. a lot of period. rain. And a lot of rain. Well, that's the thing is that we don't have rain, but we do have dampness. And yeah, everything's damp, even though it never rains. Yeah, well, and it, apparently the people wondered about that because it's like, well, the aliens are afraid of water. Why is it always wet? Oh, apparently- God, it's the, one, it's the aliens from Signs. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it also is set... More or less in that prime noir period. The thing is, we're never really sure when this is. And they explain that. They do. And it makes perfect sense in the context of the film, I think. Yeah, it does. But yeah, it's got an interesting kind of timeless feel to it. It could be the 40s. It could be the 30s. It could be the 70s. Yeah. Um, The aliens... And yes, um, spo- surprise, there's aliens. I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. <laughs> the aliens are very suitably creepy. Uh, yeah. Especially led by, well, not really led by R- uh, Richard O'Brien. It's actually read by Ian Richardson, Mr. Book. Mr. But mm-hmm. he's the lead alien as far as we're concerned. And I hate kids in films in general, especially if they're meant to be either creepy or super smart or whatever. Oh, but, but Mr. The, Sleep, yikes. Mr. Sleep, which is played by twins, actually, a boy oh. and a girl. And okay. they apparently loved it, and they were huge Rocky Horror fans, so they were so <laughs> thrilled to be working with Richard O'Brien. They were, like, jumping oh. up and down. Um, and whenever they'd move their jaws, there would be that teeth-clattering thing. The, the aliens are very suitably creepy, and yeah. there is this very much this feeling of sort of a 
very tail end of the Roman Empire feel to them. And by that, I mean, we've gotten into all about how we feel and keeping this going and no thought to any kind of infrastructure or growth or it's all about like the... We, deba- we just have to debauchy. maintain. Yeah. And, and it what, is. It's very decadent. I mean, yeah. everything is very stylized with their stuff. And obviously, they depend completely on their ability to tune, which we find out, which is they can literally affect reality around them because they're hooking into the big machine. That made it. Yeah. So it's... Yeah. Which, which of course, to me, harkens back to the old Fairbidden Planet thing with the Krell machine. They just yeah. left the id part out. Or did they? And I, I mm. want to get back to that. So this is an alien spaceship meant to look like a an Earth city because these people are dying and they think that if they can find out about what it is to have a soul, something they've obviously lost for having lived too long, that they can continue and not die. Which is We must know this human thing called <laughs> love. <laughs> we must be like the human. We must live like the human. Because if we've taught you anything, it's that all movies come back yep. to robot monster. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I mean, yes. okay, that's a little cliched. The, ah, oh, we must learn of this love thing. But they aren't talking about love. No. They don't know what they're looking That's the thing is, they don't know what they're looking for. No. They say, you know, what uh, Dr. Schreiber says, it's the soul, but that word doesn't seem to mean anything to them. They want to know the, they want to understand human nature. The, the interesting thing, and this is a really cool theme that runs through this, it reminded me a lot of Blade Runner. Oh. Is and to a certain degree the Matrix. Which yeah. Tell me, tell me the Warshawskis didn't watch this movie before they made them. I know it only they came out the it year being after. Filmed, they yeah. bought part of it. Yeah, yeah. Is the nature of memory mm. and the idea that are we just the sum of our memories? Can they just be shuffled around like cards? If you take memories away, are we no longer who we are? And, and I thought that's really interesting. And they say. Meh, kinda. Except they also point out, and this is what Jennifer Connelly says, you know, I love you. They, You can't fake that. Mm. And at the end, when they meet, and she ha- she is literally now a different person, mm-hmm. there's still the connection. Mm-hmm. And the implication there is no. The, there's an ineffable part of the human psyche or the human soul that still recognizes love. Yeah, a little sentimental, but nice. I will say that I wish they had been able to explore that, the thing you just talked about, a little bit more, because it is really interesting. But this movie's doing a lot, and it's not taking a long time to do it. It's like an hour 40. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. But since you brought it up, influences from this film, I would say the number one influence is The Matrix. (laughs) I had forgotten. I haven't seen this film since it came out. And... Let's face it, The Matrix is a much more visually active film than this is. It is yeah. much more exciting. It is a little better at explaining what's going on without it feeling too much like a badly voiced narration at the beginning of the yeah. film. But let's face it, Neo and, and John Murdoch are almost essentially the same character going yeah, through they're... the same thing. They're discovering their vision of what they thought the world was was completely wrong. They discovered that they can manipulate the world simply by thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. Tons. Mr. Smith and Agent... I'm sorry, Agent Smith and Mr. Hand. Yeah, very similar. creepy, oddly speaking agent from the other side. Yeah, Mm. I mean... And then what they do is in this, they actually give uh, Mr. Hand Murdoch's memories... Yeah. So it's actually the op- in he, a way sort of the opposite, but it's still the same idea. Mm-hmm. And to the black trench coats and yeah, the, the, the sets. Outfits, the sets, yeah, yeah. I don't honestly know if The Matrix would exist without this film. I don't. It certainly would look a lot different. Um, there's another, there's a TV series that I think has a lot of feeling of this, and that's Neverwhere. Oh, which okay. Would, yeah. The that, Neil Gaiman series? It would come a year or so later, I forget, but yeah. There's echoes from the Truman Show. In, from Absolutely. This, you, know? you know, there's even echoes from an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which oh, yeah. came out a year or two after. There's an episode called Hush, where a group of demons show up called the Gentlemen, who are these pale, creepy-looking guys in black suits who float around, only they're taking people's voices. Okay. But so again, it's not a it's not a ripoff. But I think it was an influence. I think this was an influence. 
How about Inception? Yeah, I think so. Even the whole way that with the sh- city reshaping itself, very much so. Very, um, yeah, visually very similar. There's a famous PlayStation game, actually series of games called Bioshock, and the whole idea of Bioshock oh, yes. is it takes place in a Art Deco-ish type film noir, but some sort of steampunk background, which mm-hmm. has a, lo- a lot of the feelings of the torch singing, all that stuff. A lot of that feels like this in a way. And it's it, the weird part is that this film didn't do very well. It barely made back its actual budget. But we're sitting there looking at these other films and other things, and it's like... This isn't fair. <laughs> yeah. Now, that being said... Mm-hmm. I want to say that there were a lot of uh, influences for this film. Uh, one of the oh, biggest yeah. came only a couple of years before this was a, f- a French film called The City of Lost Children. Did you ever see oh, that? Oh, I've seen parts of it. I've never seen the whole thing. Yeah, the creepy people in that film and the creepy people in this film feel a lot yeah. the same. There's a lot of uh, things. Okay. There was a comic called Mr. X, and the idea behind Mr. Nope. X was that Mr. X was an architect who was building a city that was supposed to make few p- people feel good, but was actually causing them to go insane. Oh, was that the whole thing with the idea of psychotecture? That's exactly where it's from. Okay, I heard about it, never read it. But, again, the art deco, the noir aspects feel very much. Uh, Terry Gilliam was a big influence on this film. Oh, I'll bet he was. And then he would come back with Brazil and say, well, you know, I really like Dark City, so it all worked together. In fact, I think at least a couple of the people in this movie end up in Brazil. It might be. I haven't seen it in a very long time. Yeah, the guy who plays Mr. Book is in it. Ian Richardson? Yeah. Yeah, I only saw that once, and lucky for me, it was the director's cut, which is super extra happy at the end. But, uh, yeah. Metropolis. I mean, there's mm. uh, the city itself. To a degree, yeah. Akira. This I have not checked, Ooh, but apparently yeah. the last panel of Akira it influenced the city turning into things, different things. So, uh, a film that we have not touched upon, but we've talked about M which was uh, an early black and white Pierre Laurie film, apparently has a lot of stuff. So it goes both ways, But and there's actually a comic, this is a very lesser-known comic from Europe, called The Great Walls of Samaras, which is one of my favorites. It's about a city that reshapes itself depending on the people who visit it, but it turns out literally nothing is real at all, and the main character eventually finds this out. So it goes back and forth, but the thing that I will say is that, especially when it comes to The Matrix... It doesn't feel so much like an influence or an homage <laughs> as it does an echo. Yeah, I got to say, there are a number of points. There's this, the sequence. We're jumping out of uh, chronological order here. Yeah. But wh- at the end, when Murdoch is turning into the Vitruvian man in their weird metal thingy, sado- sadomasochism frame, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, Schreiber gives him the injection of what, you know, he switches the hypos. He's supposed to be giving them, giving him a shot of their consciousness, whatever right. that is. He gives him his own memories, but he's edited them, which I thought was actually very clever, so that in effect he gets a lifetime of training with how to use the tuning power. Right. But all I could think when he wakes up is that he should open his eyes, look at Schreiber, and say, I know Kung Fu. No, you don't. <laughs> Because it's the it's like okay yes instant yeah. memory instant skill it's like okay this is familiar yeah good or bad because we haven't got to that part I, I really will never be able to look at the Matrix the same way again a film that yeah. I generally really like but it's like if you didn't have this film Dark City you wouldn't I don't think you would I it, there's too coincidental there's too much that's the same right yeah so that's that's what I'm feeling about that particular I part. wonder. Um, I do want to point out there's a couple of points of some really bad overdubbing. I don't know if yeah. you would have heard this, but I listened with headphones. Again, not oh. the way the movie was meant to be experienced, but there we go. Not a big deal. What did you think of the soundtrack? There was a soundtrack? Oh, yes. I didn't notice it. I did. I thought it was heavy-handed. It actually yeah. felt more like an 80s Batman movie than it felt yeah. like subtle. Um, it was way too orchestral, way too... It was almost... Ta-da! And it's like, eh, mm. it's not my, my kind of thing. Um, we do have a little sidebar we need to address. We actually meant to do this earlier, but last week's episode was, shall we say, full. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, going over quickly, moving away from Dark City, we had a response from Ned on the website, mm. and he had a very interesting 
point that I think is worth bringing up. Yeah. And he said, uh, quote, not a poll question response. I know I've been slacking, so sorry. But listening to your description of a noir movie got me thinking, can James Bond movies be termed pop noir? They have double crosses, convoluted plots, at least one misogynistic detective type. <laughs> the femme fatale. He's not wrong. No. And a grim outlook on a humanity. On the other hand, they're quite a bit flashier, are explicitly nationalistic, and tend to have happy endings, so they don't quite fit the category of straight-up noir either. What do you think? Is it even helpful to think of them as being related to noir, or not so much? End quote. I, I think it's a fascinating question. Mm. I would say no for a couple of reasons. Mm. I, they do have noir elements, but he points out there's some similarities. But first of all, one of it is the scale. Mm -hmm. Noir is always very localized. Right. It takes place in the city. Does, mm -hmm. We don't have to know what city. It's usually a city. Maybe they go to a neighboring town or a neighborhood, but it's always... they go across the border to Mexico. They go across the border to Mexico for a minute and a half. Touch of evil. Yeah, yeah. And even in uh, Big Sleep, they go somewhere to uh, that... Sh <laughs> they do. They go south to that shack, and it sounded like it was... Uh, no, it, it has a Spanish name. No, yeah, but it was still in California. They did. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, there isn't a lot El of travel. And I'm pretty sure the name was El Shaco. <laughs> that was it. James Bond is global. He goes yeah. everywhere. Also, James Bond takes place way too much in the daytime. It's yeah. too brightly lit. My feeling, too, is that noir tends to be lower middle class and below. And James tends, Bond is yeah. anything but that. Well, it's also... Noir tends to be very small scale. Right. It deals with... A murder, maybe a couple of murders. It deals with one small crime that the local police are into, not global threats. Like mind control lasers. <laughs> yes, or, yeah, or, or weather control or uh, whatever. Yeah. I, oh, or, well, you're talking about nuking, General Hospital now, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> or nuking America's gold supply. Sure, yeah. I. The funny thing is, and we obviously, it wouldn't matter what we decided, we haven't really yet decided which elements must be present for it to be yeah. considered noir so is it, isn't it, it to me it just doesn't feel it yeah. like i don't get that same world weary jaded look at, at life the way that noir tends to do i don't know bond some versions of him come across that way he's killed so many people he's done so much he's just yeah, whatever. I'll go. How can I possibly enjoy people. my Aston Martin or my high end Scotch <laughs> or my Rento Woman? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like poor rich people, boo hoo. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. And you know what? Let's leave yeah. it open. If anybody yeah. would like to comment on that, do yeah. you think what that you think? Bond can be considered, can be considered pop noir? Is that yeah. a thing? Is it at all noir? By all means, let us know. We won't do that yeah. as an actual poll question, but I'm interested. We'd love to hear back. And thank you, Ned, for bringing yeah. it up. It gave us a lot to think about. Very cool. Now, that bringing it back around, um, the question I have for you, Max, is whether or not the film's good or not, because mm -hmm. we haven't got there, is it noir? I think it is. Again, the scale, for most of it. I mean, eventually we realize we're on a planetary scale, sort of. Well, we're not, though. And we're we've still got on a city scale. It's true. Just but we've got superpowers in uh -huh. this and aliens, but there is still... Yeah, the whole idea of uh, everything's crap, everything is a lie, that whole, it's the ultimate cynicism. It's like our lives don't matter, our memories don't matter, they're shuffled around like cards, who we are is a lie. It's got that cynicism. Mm -hmm. Even the ending is, well, yeah, it's all a lie, but it's my lie now. Yeah, I want to get back to the ending too before we get to the wrap up. So you would say, you yeah. would say this is noir. I think so. It's also the the look and the feel. Some of the costumes are right out. I mean, William Hurt looks like he just stepped out of a Raymond Chandler novel. Right. Not everybody does. Nope. But but he oh, does. Jennifer Connelly does. Jennifer Connelly kind of. Yeah. And that hair. True. I mean, when she's got her hair and all those long, lips <laughs> and that skin. Stop. Stop. And those green eyes. Uh, Max, your yeah. chin. You might want to wipe that uh, off. Oh, well, yeah. 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 I want to agree. I think the interesting part is that they've taken some other subject matter, some science fiction subject matter, 
and brought it into noir. Yeah. Elements you can't have in The Big Sleep or The Maltese Falcon, you know, the idea of mind control and Mm -hmm. manipulation and memory changes. And the way they deal with them is still very much noir. Um, Science fiction doesn't preclude noir. Look at Blade Runner. We talked about that. Blade Runner's noir. Oh, boy, is it noir as far as I'm concerned. And it's all about identity, what constitutes identity and, you know, actual identity as opposed to manufacturer identity. Is there a difference between the two? Should there be? And it all takes place with noirish elements, but those elements are brought in and considered and dealt with the same way noir deals with other things like murder or, you know, bigamy or what have you. So I, I think it was very deftly woven into even classic noir, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. But the ending, is it a happy ending or a sad ending? Well, first off, some of the elements of the ending, it goes out of noir and goes right into, I'm sorry, when, when Murdoch and Book are tune dueling, mm-hmm. I kept waiting for Book to just suddenly scream out, Unlimited power! <laughs> or, your faith you know, your friends is yours. <laughs> Yeah. The, the I, whole, like, you know, you know, well, it's hell, also, it's very Neo yeah. versus Smith, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. In the third movie, not so much the second, because or the first movie, because the first movie, it's a kung fu battle. Yeah. And in this, it's like, weird warp mind beam things. Yeah. And that, that, that gets a little over the top. And did you notice they invoke the Spanus? Well, there is a very brief spanus. <laughs> a space anus. An objectionable spanus, but <laughs> technically, yeah. this does mark an appearance of a spanus. So, yeah, yeah boy, we're deeper so, in ourselves. But yeah, yeah, we are. I think the in, the ending is so interestingly subtle that the implications of it do not make themselves instantly noticeable. Yeah, because what's happened. He's now the sole wielder of the power that literally controls the entire universe that they live in. So what happens now? The one thing that was also meant to be very subtly in there was they meant to show that this ship is moving. Yeah. We don't know where it's going. Is it going to bump into a sun? Is it going to fall into a black hole? Or is there a destination? But right now... We technically have for these whatever thousand, two thousand, three thousand people a god. Yeah. What happens to that? As as he points out, you know, he says, So I can make this world anything I want. There's something there's a subtle element of menace there. Well, not only that, but isn't it also the potential that he's gonna end up being the very thing he just destroyed? Yeah. I it's interesting. We we I think we, we hope don't know. with that he and Jennifer Connolly will just live out their happy lives and whatever, or maybe he'll find a way to get the ship back home. But none of that is touched on. It's all left nope. for us. And for me, well, is that a strong choice or not? We'll get to that, I think, in the final thing, because that's that, that's one of those ambiguous endings that some people really don't care for. But if you want to just take it on the surface, they're literally looking into the sunrise over the water yeah. for the first time, and that seems very hopeful. And he he made a sun. He, he built a friggin' sun. No, 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 no. They show the the ship just flips. The reason that it was not facing uh, the sun was uh, because the aliens can't stand bright sunlight. Uh, so right. that he did not make. It's only the well, stuff maybe on the ship. Maybe it's actually in orbit of the sun. Of a sun. Maybe it's yeah. ours. We don't know. There's no way yeah, for us no to know. Yeah, we have no idea. But I'm just about out of... I do have to say, visually, the thing that struck me at the end when he has created an ocean around the city, Mm -hmm. I'm going, and it's, you know, round and flat. I'm going, he just made the disc world. (laughs) He just, he turned the city into the disc world. Uh, Where's the big turtle? I was going to say, there's no turtle. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's turtles all the way down. Well, hey, if this universe becomes the disc world awesome yeah. we've got a whole yeah. bunch of I, movies to come <laughs> there yeah there's magic in it why not yeah sure. and a great postal system yep, uh, yep. <laughs> but uh i think we should get to that part because yeah. like a lot of good so. parts but does it hold up uh, yeah the finish some acts yeah you saw it on videotape a long time ago 
Yes. Have I you don't think I've seen it since. No, no. I think I'd only seen it the once. So do you remember what you thought of it at the time? Maybe not. I kind of do. I remember watching it and thinking, oh, so close. Interesting. I thought there was a lot that was good about it, but I, it to me, it didn't come together. Okay. I thought the whole over, crazy ass science fiction ending kind of damaged it a little. Okay. I don't know what else they could have done, mm -hmm. but I don't know. It. I, I kind of understand why this hasn't been as successful. So is that how you feel now, or how you felt? Yeah. Then? No, it's still how I feel. I okay. still think. This doesn't, it's got all these great parts, but they don't quite come together. Uh, I, I do enjoy it. I, I think the performances are good. I, I think it's, I think it's fascinating to look at it and see how it really influenced a bunch of other movies. But uh, it, to me, it's just like, oh, just almost good, but not quite. What about you? What did you think when you first saw it? I remember really liking it. And if this was a time period, late 90s, when there was this weird habit a lot of us had is we'd go see a movie, and then six months later when we were at the mall going to Suncoast Video, we'd go, oh, I liked that movie, I'm going to buy it on DVD. And I did. And I never watched it again. Yeah. Just like Amelie. Why? Don't know. Yeah. So I was kind of looking forward to watching it again to see if I still liked it. And I'm not going to disagree with you. But I liked it more than you did. I think it sounds like I didn't dislike it. I liked a lot of it. It's just as a on the as a whole, I don't think it coheses. Becomes I think cohesive for me. Even if it doesn't, I don't mind that. Okay, it, because it's trying to do something so. Man, it's just it's so outside the usual. You know, it's really ambitious in what it's trying to achieve. That I think it actually pretty much does. I love the the noir elements. I love the fact that it's science fiction knitting these together totally correctly. We get a pair of socks. We don't get one sock. We don't get three socks. We get two socks. Boy, there's a weird metaphor. I think that there is some really interesting things to think about after the film, and that's not common. So yeah. often with films like this, they present a story, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. The only thing you wonder about is when the next film comes out, you're not really sitting there thinking about implications of things within the story. And this film makes you think, if you have any interest in speculative fiction, as it's sometimes called, you start to wonder, well, what ends up happening with Murdoch and all these people? You know, we have no idea how long they've been there. Has it been the yeah. same people? Are they being kept longer than usual? What happens when he dies? Yeah. What year is, is it? We don't. Well, yeah. And the thing is, is they're good questions. And they're not questions where I go, well, why doesn't the film tell me this? It's like, yeah. I want to think about this. Yeah, this, it's not like they're plot holes. No. It's like, this raises some interesting questions that we want to think about. And that's the whole point of speculative fiction. It's meant to yeah. make you look at something in a different way and then continue thinking about it. And I think in that respect, the film's actually very successful. I am kind of surprised that it's never achieved that buckaroo bonsai-like status where it's like, oh, we all love this film. It doesn't really get mentioned much, and it's kind of too yeah. bad. because. When was the last time you saw Dark City cosplay anywhere? Never. Which is a, really a damn shame. And even for 98, this, except for that very opening, very cartoony look at the city, I thought the special effects were actually pretty good. They were. A lot of them were very practical. A yeah. lot of them looked really good, especially for 1998. I think they did themselves a favor, and they had a lot of them taking place in the dark. But that being said, you know, CG was not a huge thing at that point. And it was, I mean, you know, obviously the Matrix would use a lot of it, but it was still somewhat experimental and expensive. So, yeah, yeah I think it both is noir, and I think it holds up. Max a little less so, but still likes yeah. it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But you know what else Max likes? Max likes hearing the poll question being gone over again. Poll question! Max like poll question! I told you. So we'd like to know, is there still room for noir in today's cinema? Or has it all been said before? Is there still relevance to this subgenre of film? Should we still even be thinking about making noir films? Or is that something we just look back in nostalgia and enjoy? 
And the way you can tell us is to go onto Facebook and give us a comment on our little page there, which is under Max Mike Movies, or you can go directly to the website, like certain people from Canada, and it's MaxMikeMovies.com. Lots of episodes, lots of places to leave comments, give us ideas, suggestions, whatever. Hey, respond to Ned's idea. Is Bond should uh, like a pop noir should be thought of that way, or does that not make any sense at all? You can also email us directly at us at MaxMikeMovies.com. You can go to any podcast app you like, and we're there, whether we want to be or not. But we're still in the middle somewhere, because we still haven't decided where this series is ending, because y'all got to give us such great ideas for films that yeah. we want to cover. We went to a Sin City. We went to a Dark City. Well, where are we going next, Max? Fun City! No. Um, <laughs> uh, Butte? I there is a place that used to call itself Fun City. I don't remember where it was, but yeah. uh, no, because this time I'm going to show. I know what all of you are thinking. You're all thinking, well, film noir is only made here in America. Except for Dark City, which is made in Australia, but. <clears throat> yeah, but that's pretty much America. Okay. And, you know, Diva, Diva which was. <laughs> French. Which, which was made in France, and but that's okay because we saved their butts in Vietnam. Oh, God. <laughs> And <laughs> you cause so much pain. <laughs> right between yes, the eyes. there is noir in faraway places, and this noir, in fact, takes place in Tokyo. What? what? Was, yeah, where they actually have movies and everything. <laughs> this one, this was a little harder to place chronologically because we've had sort of the classic noir, which to right. us is like 30s, 40s, 50s, and modern noir, which is after everything else <laughs> this was 1966 but it's foreign so that makes it older don't uh, question me <laughs> it's i have we're going to. to take we're going to take a look at tokyo drifter oh yes I which is dave not, san likes that movie dave san likes that movie and it is let me make this clear it has nothing to do with the fast and the furious movies oh good wait that's tokyo drift not tokyo drifter uh, oh Yes. Um, so I, I don't should, know if there are any. I, I should probably turn off my my big old Plymouth in the garage then, huh? I think you probably should. We don't need the. We shouldn't need those sound effects. Although I've never seen this. Mm. Maybe there's a lot of car chases in it. I don't know. Yeah. But we're gonna find out because this is Japanese noir, mm. and we will see it. Yes, and it does not even involve giant monsters stepping on anything. Oh, maybe this is a film that is friend to all children. Oh. <laughs> This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench.